0: You are listening to Faith Church's sermon from this week. We are a church that is committed to loving Jesus for life and loving others to life. We hope that this message encourages you to follow Jesus with your whole heart. So today we start with an introduction to our Christmas sermon series, which is called The Majesty of Christmas, The Story of Jesus Like You've Never Seen Before. It was 1996-ish when Wendell Kempton came to Clark Summit University, then known as Baptist Bible College for chapel. He spoke on a hymn that he loved called I Wonder as I wonder. Here's the background of that hymn that just caught me this past week. The hymn or Christmas Carol was discovered by John Jacob Niles, who spent many years wandering around the Appalachian Mountains in search of the origins of folk songs. A composer and singer born in Kentucky in 1892, Niles found one folk song that has become a momentum To his years of hard work a monument to his years of hard work excuse me on a cold December day in North Carolina he watched the people who lived in a poor community going through the daily chores he heard the sound of a solitary voice that belonged to a little girl a little girl sitting alone on a bench she was singing a song that Niles had never heard when she finished Niles asked her about the song She told him that her mother had taught taught it to her like her grandmother had taught to her mother before her. The song was, I wonder as I wonder. He wrote the words in a small tablet. Long after he had left the child, he continued to hear the hauntingly beautiful words and melody. They were deeply spiritual, thoughtful, but profoundly contained the joy and wonder of Christmas. When Niles introduced the song just before the beginning of World War II, he awed people with his discovery. Until his death in 1980, Niles continued his search for the source of the carol. He never found its author and concluded that the little girl was an angel sent to deliver a message of the wonder of Christ's birth. Here's how that hymn goes. It'll be on the screen. I wonder as I wander... Out under the sky, how Jesus the Savior did come for to die. Come did come for to die. For poor, honorary people like you like him like I. I wonder as I wander out under the sky. When Mary birthed Jesus, twas in a cow's stall, with wise men and farmers and shepherds and all. But high from God's heaven, a star's light did fall and the promise of ages ages it then did recall if jesus wanted for any wee thing a star in the sky or a bird on the wing or of all of god's angels in heaven for to sing he surely could have he surely could have could have had it cuz he was the king you see this year as we go through a journey of christmas looking at the majesty Of Jesus through the eyes of different characters in the original Christmas story some of them we see in scriptures some of them we don't but all of them point us back to one thing his majesty so here's how one Bible dictionary defines majesty it's the King James Bible dictionary here's what it says greatness of appearance dignity grandeur dignity of aspect or manner the quality or state of a person or thing which inspires all or reverence in the beholder, applied with peculiar, peculiar propriety to God and His works. Talks about His Majesty in a couple of scripture passages, which won't be on the screen, but I can list for you here. Um, I believe they're on your sermon outline. Jehovah reigneth; He is clothed with Majesty in Psalm 93. It also talks about it in Psalm 29 when it says, The voice of Jehovah is full of majesty. It is applied to the dignity, pomp, and splendor of earthly princesses. When he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom, the honor of his excellent majesty, many days in Esther chapter 1. This leads to some questions. And these are the questions that drive our Christmas sermon series. Do we understand his majesty? Do we truthfully grasp it? Are we able to grasp it in, a way, in our human minds? And if not, should that stop us from trying to understand it more and more? Here's what I hear in Sunday school classes from time to time. Not necessarily here, but I've heard them. Well, God's so big and we're so small. So we'll never grasp who he really is, so we shouldn't really even study. I believe it's in the search of his majesty that we find true discipleship and true fellowship with our Savior. I believe when we cut it short and we say things like, God is so big and we are so small and we will never understand God's majesty and all of its greatness, what we do is we lose a portion of discipleship. And we lose a portion of our fellowship with our Savior. As John brings the prologue to his gospel to a close, the last five verses, verses 14 through 18, which were read for you by Pastor Landon, are like the mighty finale of a musical composition. You can picture this. Played by some great symphony orchestra. We hear the rolling drums, the crashing of the cymbals, the entire percussion section of the orchestra comes alive. The fingers of the harpist fly across the strings and the trumpets blast. In these five verses, four striking facts surface regarding the incarnation of the Lord. The mystery by which God became man. Four striking facts. The first one is this, the wonderful condescension in verse 14, the first half of it. Let's read that scripture passage. I'll read it, you listen. The word became flesh and made his his dwelling among us. Now, in order to understand this point, we must understand this word, to condescend. It's not usually used in a very positive light. It means to lower oneself to a level not normally occupied, physically, mentally, or socially. It means to descend voluntarily to the level of another person. And with human beings, this is not always done with kindness. Sometimes it's done in sarcasm, Sometimes it's done in hurtful ways. Sometimes there is an air of contempt, snobbery, or haughtiness in human condescension. But there is another side to the use of this word. It is also meant to be graciously willing to do something regarded as beneath one's dignity. This is what God did when he became God himself, he doesn't have to become flesh. There's other ways to deal with the issues. But he chooses to condescend himself in a way that brings him to flesh and bones with a mysterious mixture of grace and truth. Fully gracious and fully truthful. I don't know about you, but sometimes, not sometimes, all the time, I get this wrong. Sometimes I'm very truthful, but I'm not very gracious. Sometimes I'm very gracious, but I'm not very truthful. God sends his son in a perfect way that says he has grace and he has truth. All at the same time. The word that John pronounced personified here, made personal, is the very expression and manifestation of God. The creative power of God was in the Word, according to verse 3 of this very chapter. which such limitless power, the Word of God condescended to be compressed into human flesh. Now here's This is interesting that he uses this word flesh. Because here's what's going on in this day and age, and this is how you know the Word of God is is hitting at something that is very prevalent for that day, and still today. The sophisticated Greeks would have recoiled from the word flesh in regard to deity. Flesh to them was corruptible, temporary, or doomed to be destroyed and cast aside. No God would deal with anything as degraded as human flesh. Yet that is exactly what God did. He entered human flesh, which stands for the whole person. And so what, what is being said here is, is that in this day and age, this would have been looked this very verse, this verse 14, the first half of it, it's only a couple of words, but it would have been looked at as, as a great Divide. Because to the sophisticated Greeks, they would have been like, no way does God become flesh. Because flesh is corruptible. Flesh flesh is is destroyed. Flesh is, is not something that a God would become, a deity. And yet, we celebrate God becoming Man. In becoming flesh, God accepted the limitations of humanity. Now, I'm not saying that he was imperfect. He became vulnerable to those natural human weaknesses that accompany our flesh. Tell me if it's not true that in the Gospels you hear about Jesus hungering, You hear about Jesus thirsting, specifically on the cross. You hear about Jesus at times being physically weary. Right? I mean, what is Jesus doing when the storm hits the boat in the middle of the lake? He's sleeping. When do we usually sleep? When we're weary. If he didn't have weariness, he wouldn't have had to sleep. He could have stayed awake. then pain. He experienced the emotional traumas we experience: Disappointment, sorrow, hurt, loneliness and rejection. Because Jesus had no sin nature, he did this without the taint of sin. While Jesus committed no sin while he was on earth, he experienced sin in a way that was far more overwhelming than committing sin. Why did he cry out in Gethsemane in horror? What causes him to sweat Great, great drops of blood and to plead with his heavenly Father? Abba, Father, all things are possible to you. Take this cup away from me in Mark chapter 14, verse 36. Jesus was not about to succumb to some temptation to sin. It was worse than that. He was about to drink the cup containing all the sordid sins of mankind compressed together on another tree. He was about to take every sin that you and I commit throughout our lives. Remember last week I did that, I think it was last week I did that whole thing where if you sinned only five times a day the entire year, which we all know is like a stretch of the imagination... God has forgiven you over a thousand times. It's an amazing amount of times that God has forgiven you. He took all of those sins for your entire lifetime. We're not just talking about one year. For every time you make a decision that is not God-honoring, and he smashed it together, and he is faced with that in the Garden of Gethsemane, and that is the picture that is behind me this morning. He's begging He understands the the, the, the horribleness of this situation. Jesus was not, not about to succumb to some temptation again to sin. He became sin for us. John said that Jesus lived for a while among us. He moved in, and he did so as a baby, in a manger scene, not the way that it would have been pictured, right? I mean, how many times do we come to this story? I, I was telling Pastor Landon the other week, the other day, that, you know, you, you know, after you've been in the ministry for so long, it sounds sad, and, and you won't understand this if, if you're not in our shoes but at some point you become this point, how do I tell the same story over again in an interesting way? I mean, just at this church, I've had it seven years now, I've had Christmases. My last church I had ten years, so like every, week, every year it comes around, you have to think of how do I do it differently than I did it the last year. But every year I, I sit back and I think, if, if, if I was God, and thank God I'm not, would I have done it the same way? Knowing my own self, I would not have done it the same way. Mine probably would have involved fireworks and lots of Christmas lights. Because those are two things that I love. Fireworks and lots of Christmas lights. And so if I was God and I was bringing my son into the world, I would let everybody in the world know by putting up thousands and thousands of Christmas lights and, and putting up all these, these fireworks and saying, look what's going on in Bethlehem and all this stuff. But what does God do? He brings his son into a manger scene and, and, and hardly anybody other than those that are a part of the story know what's going on. And God sets this precedence of humility by condescending his son. By saying, look, I could roll with an iron fist. I could zap everybody down and start over again. I could do all of that, but I choose to send my son into your mess. And love you in spite of you. It's powerful. But there's this amazing breakthrough. That's the second point. We have seen His glory in the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Another gr- word of deep significance in this description of our Lord's incarnation is glory. Human beings can achieve some degree of earthly glory. A person performs some outstanding deed, some benevolent act, or makes a great monetary contribution to some worthy cause. Often this person receives honor in a blaze of glory, admiration and appreciation, or a person makes some astounding discovery that makes life easier for people or more pleasant or safer for us. But God's glory is different. The first time we see God's glory is when he declares, let there be light in Genesis 1-3. What light was that? Here's the key to that, and it's very important that we understand this. It wasn't sun. For the sun and stars had yet to be created, and yet he said, let there be light. It was the glory of God in all of his heavenly brightness. God's glory filled the earth with indescribable beauty. The glory of God appeared next in the mysterious cloud that hovered over the Israelites from the crossing of the Red Sea until they entered the promised land 40 years later. But John wrote these words. We have seen his glory. He wrote of the glory of God in Jesus Christ. It was manifested every time he performed a miracle and in his life, changing teachings that seized the people, convicted them of their sins and showed them God's desire to to forgive them and make them his children. Jesus' glory was revealed every time that happened from the Samaritan woman at the well who has not just one husband you're correct you have five people who you are associated with and yet what does jesus do he offers her living water that's god's glory and then you have the woman who's called in adultery and remember you know we go through this uh, several times a year but but I want to remind you, in the Old Testament, called in adultery doesn't mean so-and-so calls so-and-so and says, hey, I think somebody's having an adulterous relationship. You ought to go confront them. No, the Old Testament law is specific. When it means, when she got called in adultery, it means it was going down when she got caught. And so she's ripped out of that situation. She's brought before Jesus. She's thrown on the ground. And they think they have Jesus trapped with this, with this question. What will he do now? Will he stone her to death? And so Jesus gets down on his hands and knees, and he starts to write in the dirt, it says. Some theologians believe that he's writing the names of people and then and, and thinking about them. So in other words, if it was me and Pastor Landon were in the group, he would, he would pull, he would say, he would write Brett, B-R-E-T-T, and then he would think, is Brett perfect? Can he throw the first stone? And then he would write Landon and he would look and he would think and he would go, is Landon perfect? Can he throw the first stone? He's off the list. I don't know if this is true. We don't know what he was writing in the sand. Some say he was writing the Old Testament wall in the sand. Whatever he was writing, he was writing something. But then he gets up and he says, listen, the one who's here that has the perfect record, the one who's here that's never made a mistake in their entire lives, the one who's here that is perfect as all get out, you can throw the first stone. Here's the stones. Pick them up and throw them. And one by one, the crowd just disappears until the only person that's standing is Jesus, the one who can pick up the stone. But what does Jesus say to her at that moment? He shows his glory by leaning into her and saying, they don't find you guilty and neither do I. That's his glory. That's his power. Dare I say that's his majesty. No one has the right to pick up the stone. But me, Jesus says. And because they haven't picked up a stone and thrown it at you, I don't find you guilty either. And even if they did, I wouldn't find you guilty. But then he says something very powerful to her, and it's so powerful. He says, go. But don't go back looking for the love you were looking for in the first place. Find it in me. glory is wonderful it's a breakthrough in our lives I wonder Faith church has have you had that breakthrough and the breakthrough certainly doesn't make you perfect I, I so wish it did but it doesn't I wish when we had this breakthrough that somehow God would instill in us that we could just go through life making perfect decisions at every turn Unfortunately, that's not what it means. But what it means is, is that when you make a left and he tells you to make a right, there's grace and truth for you. What it means when he, when he asks you to do this one thing and you choose to do the other thing, there's grace and truth. And that's the breakthrough you can have. It's an amazing breakthrough. And here's the goal of this sermon series this Christmas. Is is that you would experience every bit of his majesty in such a powerful way that you all would have an amazing breakthrough with God himself in this form of Jesus Christ. Seeing him in a different way. Knowing him in a more powerful place. And that leads us to the third striking point, the powerful testimony of his majesty. Now John kind of breaks here and 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 commentaries will tell us, history will tell us that John stops what he's writing, and he kind of takes a break. it's almost like his brain is thinking and here's what he's saying here's what he's about to go into he's about to go into the testimony of two different people himself and some other people and 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 so what the commentaries are saying is is that they believe that he's he's sharing this powerful testimony um, of his majesty with all of us so that it's not just to John talking about this mystical thing this is this is real to John this is also real to many other people and so you know I can get together and I can develop a lie that maybe a couple people will believe and we'll go along with it but now we're involving other people so that if they if it's out there and people are reading it they can stand up and say that's not at all what happened and so John stops his reading and he says these words. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have received grace in place of grace already given. For the law is given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. There are two testimonies here. First, in verse 15, is John's testimony of Christ and his greatness. John is reminding his readers of the very powerful point that Christ has been around since day one. We're not talking about a created being in the sense of, um, uh, you know, created in the sense of like we were created no, we're talking about someone who's been there since day one. We see pictures of this in Genesis when it says things like they were, uh, the, the uh, humans were made in our image. Why not just God's image? Because we believe that there is a point to be made there that it, we're talking about the Trinity. Our image. Colossians also says something in Colossians chapter 1 that says he was there since the day of the beginning. He was there from day one, from creation. And so Jesus is being set up here, and John wants us to be reminded of these very powerful points. This is the man who I once said, I am not even worthy of undoing his sandals. This is the greatness of this man. This is the majesty of this man. In verses 16 and 17 is a testimony of those in John's community. Some used to believe it was from the church fathers, but this doesn't seem to be the case. This is a testimony from those around John. And so John says, hey, Look, if you don't want to believe me, that's fine. But let's listen, to what, let's listen to what my community says in verses 16 through 17. And so, from out of his fullness, we have received grace in place of grace already given. For the law given through Moses, grace and truth came through Christ. Now, many read into these verses today and also in history, and they read that the law is a negative thing. I mean, read the words. The law isn't the issue in the Gospel of John, and really most places in the New Testament, the issue here in the Gospel of John is the unbelief of the Jewish mindset. Here's what the point is. He uses this grace and truth discussion, and he says grace upon grace, and then he says, listen, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth comes through Jesus Christ. And the immediate thought pattern here is is that people say, the, the, the Apostle John is nailing down the, the law, and he's saying the law is of no good. It's Jesus' grace and truth that is good. No, that's not at all what he's saying. The issue here is, is that the Jewish mindset can't wrap themselves around the fact that Jesus has come. They can't wrap themselves around the mindset that this majesty, this one that Jesus, this Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, the G- the Christ, has come. And so the issue is is not the issue of law and versus truth and grace. The issue is what their mindset is saying. and and and, and to really explain this a little bit better, because I realize how hard this is to grasp for us, it would be like today. The issue isn't that people don't want to believe in God sometimes. The issue is, is that they don't want to believe in a God who who would who would have standards. Right? It's not it's not so much the it's not so much the that that God is the issue. No, it's that, that God would actually say that if you don't come through my son, you don't have a way to the Father. There's a a truth issue. They they can't wrap their heads around that. It's not that they that they just totally don't believe in God. No, they believe in a God who who would never say such words. And so, just like that, in John chapter 1, the Jewish mindset had a hard time wrapping itself around the words of grace and truth because the law was pretty standard. You get caught, you get stoned. You get caught, this is what happens. It was black and white. There was no chance of, of rectus, reconciliation. There was no chance. You, this happens, this happens. And so that's what we see in today's world because sometimes people look at things and they see something happen in the church and we respond one way. And then they see something else happen in the church, and we respond another way. Because we're doing it out of grace and truth. We're not following black and white any longer. And that's hard for people sometimes. I hear it all the time from some. It's hard to grasp. It's not cookie cutter anymore. Thank God it's not. And that's exactly what John is saying the community realizes here. Looking around, they're seeing Jesus as this new and fresh way that out of his fullness we have received grace in place of grace already given. In other words, they have watched as grace has been given in places that it's already been given and it continues to flow. And they don't understand this because the law says this isn't the way it's supposed to be. Christ Christ came to win people to love on people and so yes he doesn't have to stone that adulterous woman but he does have to look her eye to eye and say listen stop doing what you're doing stop doing what you're doing do you realize that's where the grace comes out the truth of the matter is, is that she was an adulterous woman. But the truth and the grace mixed together in Jesus, and Jesus is able to look at her and say, "Listen, listen, you need to knock it off in nicer ways than that." And that is exactly what the community God that John is around is seeing in this Jesus, the Christ. The point of this testimony is to show the entire Christ event and its importance of to our salvation. Here's what, here's what I mean by that. You can't pick and choose what you want to believe and what you don't want to believe. In other words, the, the entire the entire Christ event is this. It, it's, it's the birth of Jesus. And so if we come to the birth of Jesus and you have questions... And you you struggle with, with, you know, well, how does this happen? How does a virgin give birth? And how does all this stuff? That's where you have to stop and start to study and learn and grasp. Because then it goes from his birth to his life. And then we go to his death and his resurrection and then we go to the second coming of Jesus Christ and and here's the point of this of this whole point of this 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 matter in the community that John is serving they they need to see it as one big event that we don't just celebrate Christmas and somehow Easter takes a second um, a second seat to Christmas that we don't just celebrate Christmas and Easter but somehow the second coming of Christ is just not that important. We don't live for it. We don't think about it. We don't, we don't, we don't figure out what, what, what is going on with it. We don't, we don't want to study it. We don't want to grasp it. Or we celebrate the birth, the resurrection, the, the birth, the death, the resurrection, and the life doesn't mean anything to us. Because you see, if, if he lives his life completely different than what he did, the death and the resurrection mean very little. If he doesn't come from a virgin, he now has mom and dad sin in him, and now the Lamb of God is now bruised. He can no longer be the Lamb of God. If he takes those tables at the temple when he's living his life and he does it out of anger and frustration, he flips those tables out of anger and frustration and pure sin because he's just angry. The cross means nothing. If he does the wrong move with the adulterous woman, he loses it all. See, that's the point of the community that John is serving in and that John is writing about here in this testimony, that this Christ event, it's got to be all in. You can't just take his majesty in his birth. You can't just take his majesty in his Easter. You can't just take his majesty in his life and just pick and choose what kind of majesty you want. Oh, it's cute on Christmas because he's in a baby form and he's in a manger scene and, and it's cute. And, and I want to I picture Jesus like that. No, you also have to picture him as the one that looked at the Pharisees and say, you know what? You guys look really good on the outside, but on the inside, you're like dead bones. You, you're missing the mark. Your heart is dirty. Oh, it's cute to, to think of him coming out of that grave, but, but we also have to remember the times when, when he got down and dirty with some of the, the leaders of the church and had to tell them off in tough love. See, that's the picture that John is showing us here in John chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. Number four is this, astonishing point is this, the astonishing revelation. Here's what it says in verse 18. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in in closest relationship with the Father has made him God. Remember, Moses had an overwhelming desire to see God. It was not mere human curiosity, but the compulsion of a man who bore the awesome responsibility of leading Egypt or leading Israel out of Egypt and into the promised land. Often Moses reached the point of aspiration because of the people's rebellion against his leadership. Feeling the extreme loneliness and sense of failure every leader feels, Moses believed that if he could only see God's glory, he would press on. But here's what John declares that in Jesus we have the full revelation of God no longer is, it, is he a distant mysterious being awesome and unapproachable in his glory and majesty rather Jesus communicated the love and tenderness of our God through his teachings and his compassion listen to what some hurting desperate people said about Jesus in John chapter 7 verse 46 one person quotes no man has ever spoke like this. His enemy said of him in this in Mark chapter 15 verse 39 this man really was God's son. The Roman centurion who led the crucifiers said of him the same exact thing. Indeed, Indeed Jesus gave to the world the internal revelation of God Of who God is and what he longs to become to those who will place their trust in him. That's the call of his majesty. What will you do with Jesus? Maybe you've been like me and through Christmas, sometimes it just becomes so much about everything else but Jesus. May I ask you this year to, to, to slam on the brakes literally and to sit back and watch His Majesty To grasp in a new and a fresh ways. What can you say about him today? You can observe his majesty, not with the natural eye, but with the eyes of your soul. You can know what God is like through a personal encounter with his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You can encounter the wonder that Mary's mother did through the Christmas story. You can encounter the innkeeper's son. You can encounter one of the shepherd's wives. You can encounter the wise men. You can encounter Joseph, and you will encounter all of them over the next several weeks. As they've revealed the one who would be the word made flesh. I hope you'll make it a point to be here. To experience through people like the innkeeper's son. Interesting. Never mentioned in scripture but a powerful thought. What did he think? Mary's mother, never mentioned in Scripture. But we'll be able to see what she believed. The encounter of the wise men, the encounter of Joseph, the encounter of of all of these people, pointing us to the majesty of Jesus. I hope you'll join us i hope you'll come with an open heart and an open mind that maybe you will see jesus in a new and a fresh way and it will bring his majesty to light in such a way that changes your life because you have to stop saying i can never grasp it can never grasp it and start looking for it in your daily life where is he speaking to you at we don't ask this enough in church I'm convinced of it you ever have one of those moments where you just feel like God's speaking right to your heart I did. I do. All the time. And when he does those moments, it's not like he's saying to you, you idiot, like I do to myself. Here's what he's usually saying Okay, Pastor Brett. Brett. We could have handled that a little bit better. Now, are you going to focus on my grace and my truth, or are you going to focus on your grace and your truth? Because your grace and your truth is saying you are no longer worthy. My grace and my truth is saying you are still so And I would venture to bet, if I was a betting man, I'm not. And many of you are listening to your own voices. You're saying things like, I'm not good enough. I could never serve in that capacity. I could never do that ministry. Because I'm not. When we talk to ourselves like that, we are not listening to the voice of God. And therefore, we are not experiencing His majesty. And so this Christmas, I want to change our mindset. I don't want to. I want the Holy Spirit to change your mindset. To be a church where we experience His majesty on Sunday morning. And at Bible studies. And at discipleship groups. And at outreaches. That's the desire of this Christmas series. That we see him for who he is. And it will change everything about what you think about him today. Because one day, God decided to put Jesus in a box. We know it as a manger. And he decided to wrap that gift and put it in front of the entire world and say, here it is. Some of the world has decided to open the gift and respond to the gift. Some of the world has continually pushed the gift under the tree. Some of the world has set the gift out and they've inspected it from all different angles and they're thinking to themselves, I'm not sure I really want to open this. Some have opened it and tried to return it. Some say they have opened it and never really opened it. Some have rejected it altogether. But you know what? That doesn't change. He's never once taken it back. There will be a day when he will say, I'm done. Coming back the last moment but he hasn't he continues to put the gift in front of people here it is and we hear things like a loving God would never tell someone that they're going to hell because a loving God doesn't loving God said here's a present if you open it you have eternal life. If you choose not to open it, you don't. So it's my choice where I end up. It's not his. He's done the job. He's written the check. He's paid for my sin. That's the majesty of our Jesus. It's a wonderful example what it's like for God to become in a bod. He came to love us and see more people come to him. I pray that you'll respond this Christmas season to his majesty, to his wonderful work. And maybe you've responded years ago, like me, 1983, sitting on a Sliding board in the backyard of my Dover, Pennsylvania house, my parents' Dover, Pennsylvania house. I got to be honest, he's still chiseling. I wasn't made perfect on that day in 1983. And he's still chiseling at you too. But remember, he does it in grace. And he does it in truth. Because he is the majesty. He is the powerful one. With all the glory. Let's close in a word of prayer together. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord. For this day, we thank you for this reminder of your majesty. In John chapter 1 perfect scripture passage to kind of get us thinking about this Advent season. Where the Word became flesh. Where we no longer have to just read the Bible, but we can watch your actions. Want to know what to do in a situation? Watch what Jesus does. Help us to honor you help us to experience your majesty in a way that we've never done so before this Advent season as we watch videos of people who uh, might have been there in such as the innkeeper's son and 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 Mary's mother and others may we just not watch a video but may we experience this Christmas this this story of a powerful change in our world in a new and a fresh way. And may you grow us because of it. Grow us spiritually and maybe even grow us numerically as we go out and share this good news with others at this time of year. Thank you for listening to this message. We hope it encouraged you in your walk with Christ. You can find out more about Faith Church at wearefaithec.com.